the Jungle Times, a podcast that explains how understanding nature's management principles can help you enhance your personal power and leadership skills. In a world beset by climate change, mass migration, and social unrest, fake news and bad politics are threatening the future of our planet. This series of timely presentations will demonstrate how nature's 4.5 billion years of success is based on the emergence of creative leaders. It is my pleasure to introduce your guide, the only researcher on Earth who treks tropical jungles in a wheelchair, author and training consultant, Lawrence Poole. Hello, and welcome back to the Jungle Times podcast. I'm your host, Lawrence Poole. This is episode three, and it's called How Nature Manages Complex Situations. On the last show, I explained nature's survive and prosper law. I told you that it has no exceptions. I went on to say that instead of thinking survival of the strongest or of the most fierce, we should adjust our perception to understand survival of the wisest, wisdom being the capacity to adapt to nature's law. Lastly, I mentioned three kinds of people, good, bad, stupid, who manage this complex world as a predatory prey environment. Welcome to the jungle. In this presentation, I'll explore how nature manages complex situations, and I'm going to expose how complexity emerges from four conditions, diversity, connectivity, interdependence, and adaptation. There are many reasons why you'll profit from knowing this. To successfully manage your life, to take up the challenges we all face, to help solve social and financial discrepancies, to live more joyfully, and that's just to name a few. I'll start by telling you that complex does not necessarily mean complicated. Nature favors the very conditions that compose its complexity. The more a system has a diversity of parts, even if that might seem complicated, the more it is robust. As those parts connect and interact, the complexity naturally increases, but so does its robust character. When parts rely on each other, or otherwise need each other, that contributes to an even greater complexity. And, of course, the more those parts are free to choose how they adjust to changes in conditions or circumstance, well, that might make the system really complex, but it also makes it really adaptive. Think of a company with several branch offices or plants, for example. There'll be a lot of people working there, and they'll do a great variety of jobs. That diversity is an invitation to complexity. The company is interconnected, so its employees are continuously communicating in one way or another. The parts rely on each other, and when the managers are free to adapt to day-to-day -day situations in their own way, that increases the possibility for disaster across the whole company. Think about this in terms of an organization or society. The great variety of stakeholders involved in any undertaking is both its wealth and the very source for its complexity and resulting problems. As people connect and rely on each other, as they are free to adapt, Well, this is the recipe for complex situations. Any family planning a summer vacation can appreciate how complicated a variety of options can be. Parents, toddlers, and teens have to satisfy different levels of need. A variety of hopes and expectations, a lot of interests, and several levels of tolerance. So there's a real complexity of opinions, moods, and behaviors to manage. Traditional models of strategic thinking have major failings when it comes to dealing with complex situations. In an example, managers don't often take into account the effect of their decisions on all the stakeholders when they consider procedures or processes. The lack of physical access for disabled persons will quickly show you this. Also, people tend to translate complexity into uncertainty. And we look for single outcome solutions, regardless of the circumstances underlying the problem. You should know that most people never consider what a system might become as a result of their actions. And most of us feel compelled to justify and defend our mistakes. 
The important idea here is that nature manages the whole system rather than just its individual parts. For example, life is more than a diversity of chemicals. People are more than just tissue and organs. The economy is more than money or debt, and business is more than buying and selling. The whole is greater than the sum of its parts. This idea that we are parts of a whole forces us to understand the whole as a complex system. Complexity occurs naturally when a situation answers four qualifications. Diversity, connectivity, interdependence, and adaptability. In an organization, complex situations emerge when its diversity of participants, people with different skills, talents, abilities, and job descriptions, come together. They'll rely on each other to some sort of degree, and this adds to the complexity of the whole system, because if one part misses a deadline, for example, the fallback can have a domino effect on all the other parts. If the parts of a system are free to learn and adapt, if they can act independently and respond to local and global events, that tends to increase the situation's complexity. As I said, complex does not have to mean complicated. Complicated systems might have a diversity of parts and be connected in some way, but they are not adaptive. Complicated systems do not learn and then they cannot self-correct. If they could, that particularity is what would make them complex. In any situation, the connection between people and their perceptions of how to adapt are what influence how events will play out. Studies show us that only 3-5% to of people are visionary leaders who view change with positive anticipation and who adapt easily to new situations. To understand visionary thinkers, consider Bobby Kennedy's famous words when he paraphrased George Bernard Shaw. He said, Some men see things as they are and ask why. Others dream things that could be and ask why not. Visionaries are those people who see possibilities and potential when the majority of people do not. Somewhere between 5 and 10% of us are new paradigm pioneers. We quickly see what the visionary is proposing, and without resistance, we endorse that change and adopt it. Then about 20 to 30% of individuals are a motivated mass of people who want change. They'll work for it, and they'll stand ready to adopt any good idea. 40 to 60% of people are the indifferent mass, or what Richard Nixon called the silent majority, that many people view change with apathy. Tell me what you want, and I'll see to it later, maybe, if I have time. When they do adopt a new idea, it is most probably because a significant number of others already have. Lastly, only 5 to 10% of people remain non-adopters. They want nothing to do with change. They resist it and fight it. They'll sabotage it, and they'll terrorize others. A proof in point is an organization called the Flat Earth Society. They refuse to accept evidence that this planet is a sphere, not a flat disk as they claim. There's also an organization with members all over the world convinced that man never walked on the moon. They believe the film footage was produced in Hollywood. Various religions see God as a bearded man on a throne somewhere who punishes bad people and rewards good ones. Cults think human beings began in alien test tubes. And there are people who still deny the Holocaust, others who won't acknowledge COVID-19 as a pandemic. Friends, there are conspiracy theorists for every historical event, and folks still believe that rock and roll is the devil's music. Oddly, we are inclined to try and convince people who aren't at all interested that they should somehow change. But as well you know, none are so blind as they who will not see. Instead, we should invest resources to encourage and support visionary thinkers and their new paradigm ideas. Unfortunately, the status quo committee is managed by status quo people, and they are against change. Surrounded by an indifferent mass, visionaries and new paradigm pioneers are burning out. They try to improve things against resistance that's built into the system. Without proper support, Creative people are merely voices crying in the wilderness. Managing a simple situation 
means one that has predictable behaviors with few interactions and feedback. There is centralized decision-making and power is concentrated among few participants. It's possible to change a part without considering how it affects the whole system. Complex situations normally occur as a result of counterintuitive thinking when decisions prove full of surprises. For example, not realizing that low taxes and interest rates leads to higher unemployment. Decentralized decision-making makes simple solutions complex. A large number of variables and many interactions cause delays, lacks, confused feedback loops, and irrational feed-forward projections, and these contribute to destructive situations. In many organizations, five major problems are known to cause simple situations to become complex. These are systemic in business culture. Number one is employees are bored or discouraged or generally unhappy. Number two is supervisors are under-equipped and they over-supervise. Three realizes that turnover is very high. Four tells us that conflict, stress, and tension are palpable. Five tells us that communication flows down, not up. These problems can destroy essential aspects of an infrastructure. Complex situations will occur when participants adapt according to their own notions of what is permitted. Unexpected outcomes emerge from unintended rules. Complicated targets and plans stifle adaptive abilities. In a predator-prey environment, complexity thrives on tension and paradox. Here, small changes can have huge effects, and large changes can have little or no effect. It is argued that a healthy organization lives on the edge of chaos, a region of moderate certainty and agreement. Beyond that moderation, complex situations engender complex systems. But complex systems are always made up of smaller, simpler ones. Imagine how quickly problems would be solved, or projects completed, or needs filled, if everyone jumped one category to transcend their own mindset. Imagine if the motivated majority took a visionary risk and adopted a new paradigm idea. Or if the silent majority suddenly got motivated. Well, if that happened, a genuine revolution would take place. The only question that's interesting is this. What group do you belong to? Are you a leader? How quickly would needed changes in your life occur if you decided to jump up a category? How would your world be transformed if you were suddenly more open-minded or more tolerant? What if you were less self-indulgent? Think about that. I'll be right back. Why should we learn how to manage complex systems? Well, for one thing, complex systems can withstand substantial trauma. That is to say, complex systems are more robust than simple ones. They are therefore more durable and sustainable. And complex systems can actually produce large events. So if you learn to manage complexity, then you can influence larger events yourself. To understand how to manage a complex situation, you have to describe it in one of three kinds of landscape. One, a simple problem can be compared to a volcano landscape. Do a Google search for an image of Costa Rica's Arenal volcano to see what I mean. You'll find a single mountain with a perfect cone. It's shaped like a triangle. Then imagine the problem exposed along the baseline, a length that is A to B, and solution appears at a position C somewhere above the line. The solution to a problem cannot exist at the same level of thinking as the problem. So climbing to position C allows you to see the whole problem. Because you see the whole baseline when you climb to the peak of a volcano, you can detail the problem as a length A to B. From the higher position C, you can see solution emerge. In any organization, the leader sits atop of a pyramid. Simple problems can be understood as volcanoes 
because all the input that explains the situation and all the ideas about possible solutions to it are within that landscape. The creative fire that maintains the volcano is also within, as are all the climbers who can search for solutions. The leader can influence all the component parts, so from the top, solutions are more easily explored, found, and implemented. The second kind of landscape should be chosen if problems have more than a single contributing factor. Then they are considered complex and cannot be seen as an Arenal volcano landscape. Complex problems have several bases and peaks, and so they appear as a chain of mountains. Google the Talamanca Mountains in southern Costa Rica to see what I mean. That range has peaks that rise to more than 3,000 meters in altitude, and others, like the part we build at Mayamu, are 400 meters high, and the mountains drop into the sea. That complexity is called a rugged landscape. Complex situations are like mountain ranges because they have a great deal of variables where each problem has its own baseline and peak and several possible solutions. Mountain ranges also have a lot of inner fire and potential climbers who can reach those peaks. A rugged landscape can be explored from both local and global peaks. A local peak describes any place in the landscape where a step in any direction needs an ascent and elevation too. Those kinds of decisions require creative solutions from local thinkers. A global peak is the highest point from which all the local peaks can be viewed. We can actualize a mission or share a corporate vision or promote a national constitution from these higher elevations. Rugged landscapes then have many local peaks to climb, and global peaks may be difficult to isolate. We'll say that we couldn't see the forest for the trees to explain this sort of terrain. Imagine a branch manager supplying the inner fire from his local peak, and a territory manager or an executive with the inner fire to climb a global peak. These different levels of thinking severely add to complexity. The third way is when the interaction in a complex system is subject to sudden change. The system is called a dancing landscape. Think of that rugged mountain chain suddenly hit by an earthquake, or a hurricane for example. Then everything will shake, and everything will change. Susie and I experienced Hurricane Cesar in 1996. That tropical hurricane crossed Costa Rica from the Atlantic Ocean to continue as a cyclone on the Pacific side. We were at the center of it and saw rain in such volume that we couldn't see buildings across the street from our house for hours on end. In this rugged landscape, the rain caused such widespread flooding that it badly damaged 51 homes while 213 others were washed away in mudslides. Also, 72 bridges were destroyed and 83 avalanches blocked our way from the hub city of San Isidro to the capital, San Jose, 90 miles north. 39 people were killed, and 29 others were listed as missing. We were isolated for five weeks and saw the landscape dance to a tune that cost $151 million. The Costa Rican amazed me with how well they managed that suddenly very complex situation. Every crisis was met with creativity. We were constantly informed and reassured. We lacked nothing, and by the time we were mobile again, and I went to survey the damaged landscape, I realized that everything was already being fixed. At the end of August, I told Susie, you know, when tourists arrive in December, January, and February, they won't even realize where the damage was. Pointing to a gap in the horizon, I added, They'll never know there once was a mountain over there. I saw how global change offers the opportunity to improve a whole system. Managing complexity means dealing with both rugged landscapes and dancing landscapes. Many of the challenges force systems to adapt locally. Because the overall performance of a system is judged at higher elevations though, even if climbing a local peak is always the best immediate option, Climbing a global peak is the most secure option overall. In an easy example, at an organizational level, 
Consider how McDonald's Corporation adapts to local markets. Their breakfast menu in Costa Rica includes galopinto, a local favorite recipe for rice and beans. Whereas in the Philippines, you will find cheesy egg desol, a Filipino favorite. Those decisions were made at local peak levels. Both of those places offer the egg McMuffin, though, and that is a global peak decision. In today's world, most problems, the ecology, the economy, our health needs, social unrest, and the fight for justice occur as rugged landscapes. These require local actions and global transactions. But bad and stupid people are also climbing those peaks, and they keep moving the target. While some folks are desperately trying to contain the COVID-19 pandemic, for example, others are working to make things worse. They are making the landscape dance by promoting fake news and selfish views. As difficult to manage as a rugged landscape might seem to be, it is not impossible to do it well. Learning how to brainstorm a logic ladder lets you manage events as they unfold. You can work out many of the details as sequential events. If they do A or B, we can counter with one, two, three. But if they choose C or D, then we can try four or even five and six, etc. Logic ladders allow you to plot out how the problem, plus one, becomes a solution, minus one. Plus one plus minus one equals zero. Reduce the problem to its simplest part and then code it with the value plus one. Not plus in the sense that it is good, but rather in the sense that it does exist. We acknowledge we have a problem. Then you can see the problem abolished by adding to it the value minus one, its perfect contradiction, so that plus one plus minus one equals zero. This does not give you a solution. It eliminates the problem, and that allows a solution to emerge in the space created. For example, imagine a colossal problem we can call war. We can eliminate war by adding to it its most perfect contradiction, peace. Now, as simple as that may seem, the behaviors involved in stopping a war are not the same that's required to start a peace. Peace will emerge from the promotion of justice, security, and tourism. You can work out the steps on a problem's baseline so that the emergence of the solutions have a greater chance of success. Even if it's a variety of its interactions that make a landscape rugged, it's the unexpected that makes it dance. This can come from spontaneous events like a pandemic or from the actions of others. A most intriguing insight is that dancing landscapes depend on the perspective gained from the players climbing local and global peaks figure out who are the good, who are the bad, and who are the stupid people, and what are they doing. In those spontaneous event situations, game theory is the way to go. I strongly recommend that you download a little book called Finite and Infinite Games by James Carse. You can buy it at Amazon.com, but you can also download a free PDF. I'll put the URL in the description to the podcast. That book explains life as play and possibilities while spelling out the rules of game theory. It'll help you decide the consequences of your actions. In a complex system, it is crucial to distinguish whether a situation requires a local decision or that you have to find a global solution. If you are acting for the short term or in a win-lose situation, you can play a finite game. But when your actions and decisions are part of the longer term, and it must be sustainable, then you should play the infinite game. If others have more influence, the only question of any really worth, then, is what game are you playing? Game theory will help you manage those events that make rugged landscapes dance. The path you choose to find a solution will depend on your perception and how you code the problem. Nature doesn't deal with perceptions, but with the problem code. When a problem has certain attributes, it is deemed simple. If it has a variety of attributes, it might be treated as a rugged landscape. If it is moving, it's a dancing landscape. This insight should be used by every thinker and problem solver. How you see the problem, how you encode it, whether it's symbol, rugged, or dancing, determines your approach to solving it. The attributes of a complex system are its diversity, its connectivity, 
its interdependence, and its adaptability. It is interesting to note that more possibilities occur when these four variables are in a state of flux, when they are moving. On a scale where one measures little diversity, connectivity, interdependence, or adaptability, and 10 measures a lot of them, things are most interesting at the in-between states, where everything is flexible and can still move or somewhat adjust. A system with little or none of these variables tends to remain stable for a time and then become entropic. The definition of entropy is the tendency for a system to change from a state of order to a state of disorder, from cosmos to chaos. I mentioned in my last podcast a situation I had to manage because, as Drust never sleeps, my wheelchair collapsed from under me when I was deep in the jungle. It was stable for a time, but then chaos. You'll notice that there's never a good time for chaos to happen. Systems with too much diversity, connectivity, interdependence, and adaptability tend to collapse. But in that interesting in-between state, there is a possibility for movement, and systems can produce new patterns where different structures and functionalities can emerge. This is why innovative solutions and empowering strategies can improve the whole system. Complex systems can be made to survive and prosper. Think about that. I'll be right back. Nature manages complex situations by encoding them. As the component parts of a system are the cause of its complexity, problems should be seen as a volcano landscape, a rugged landscape, or a dancing landscape. How you encode a problem determines the approach you will use to find and implement a solution. I learned a lot about how nature manages by observing the many, many species at Mayamu, our jungle reserve. It didn't take me long before I could actually predict the interactions that I saw out there in the garden. Any good gardener will tell you that species can be made to work well with others and to benefit them. Mutualism is one of the ways that nature manages complex situations. It encourages species to help one another. Farmers know that companion planting helps to increase crop yields, decrease plant diseases, and limit pests. As complicated as the practice might seem to a city dweller, when you partner with others to get positive results, you learn to manage win-win-win scenarios nature's way. This is quite different from agribusiness that relies on chemical fertilizers and insecticides. These harm plants and soil, so there's a net loss to the whole system. The win-win-win benefits of companion planting include crop protection, risk mitigation, positive hosting, plant defense. Crop protection means that tougher or more resistant plants like large trees can take the brunt of weather conditions and protect more delicate ones. Or varieties that enjoy a lot of sun can shade those that are less tolerant. Companions can offer natural protection in harsh environments. And we can mitigate risks. Things outside of our control like temperature and weather can harm delicate species, but we can increase our chances for success and make up for losses by growing more tolerant kinds of plant too. We can invite insects and birds to work the garden by growing their favorite things. Plants that produce nectar and pollen to feed beneficial insects or seeds and berries to feed birds are positive hosts who keep them around and help them manage harmful insects. The best offense is a good defense. You can protect plants that harmful insects love by growing them next to plants those same insects can't stand. Managing complex situations needn't be complicated at all. I've mentioned that consciousness emerges as an inherent part of organic molecules. This metaphysical aspect of life is what allows individuals and organizations to evolve together. We can willfully adapt to new conditions. We can learn to manage challenges by exploring what works and then by copying successful behavior. Nature manages by compelling species to adopt 
new strategies, do or die. I was forced to manage my within after the car accident that paralyzed me. As the saying goes, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Species tend to organize themselves according to events and circumstances in their environment. In an article on how nature manages itself, human factor engineer Randall Whitaker tells us, there is widespread interest in applying the theories of self-organization in nature to the analysis and engineering of enterprise. By enterprise, Whitaker, who is a doctoral fellow at the University of Wisconsin, describes the whole range of human activity. He explains seven ideas from studies in biology that apply directly to managing complex situations. These are the principles of self-organization, self-configuration, self-regulation, self-steering, self-maintenance, self-reproduction, and self-reference. I added two more that specifically exist in human system, self-awareness and self-empowerment. The first idea says that every complex system is self-organizing. Self-organization describes the mechanism wherein order arises from the interaction between smaller, seemingly disordered component parts. The organizing process can be spontaneous and not necessarily controlled by an agent outside of that system, or it can be much slower and influenced by forces from the outside. In other words, when the conditions are right, complexity is organized and a larger order emerges, like magic. Some have called God a great architect, but say what you will, the examples of self-organization are all around us. When yeast meets a watery soup of grains and sugars, presto, alcohol is formed. When sperm meets egg, bam, a complex human life emerges. As soon as Earth's atmosphere was conducive to sustaining life, life emerged, first as organic molecules, then a simple soup of bacteria that slowly organized into increasing complexity, forms like fungi and flora and fauna and its latest arrival, Homo sapiens. That notion allows us to see how an organic system's success is largely determined by its own character and behavior and how it reacts to circumstances and events, how it adapts to the survive and prosper law. I'll use a termite nest as an easy example. Termites have existed for millions of years, so they know what they're doing. With several million members in a colony, that society didn't suddenly emerge because the termites were running around wishing for it. The directives to organize itself, to build and maintain itself as a colony, came from within. Individual members filled the needs of the collective by communicating them globally and answering them locally. The more than 3,000 species of termite on this planet have adapted to a wide variety of conditions, from the most arid desert where temperatures reach 50 degrees Celsius to the wettest and coldest forests, sometimes below zero. No one told them how to adapt to these conditions. Each species and every colony within that species is a superorganism where every member contributes to the group's survival. They manage themselves in a system where each nest is responsible for its own citizens. Everyone starts out life as a worker, toiling for the common good, but then some individuals graduate to other tastes depending on group need, depending on circumstances and events. No one from outside of that colony tells them what to do. This is one lesson most organizations have adopted. Since the 1940s, Science has viewed enterprise as something more than the sum of its parts. Looking at its many activities, studies have found that companies don't function like a distinct, passive, and rigid entity. Companies are dynamic systems. Their behavior evolves in the normal course of their operations. How a company evolves is determined by the enterprise itself and by the individuals who are its creative capital, its inner fire. How an organization behaves shapes its success or not. It can ensure failure. To succeed, it is in the best interest of every member of the organization to maintain open, 
constant and creative communications within and without its ranks. I see so many people in large companies and government departments operate as if in a silo, focused on their own tasks and operations alone, largely oblivious to the rest of the world that surrounds them. Of course, that's a recipe for disaster. Similarly, some people have very little clue about how to communicate their needs to the larger whole. They are frustrated when their ideas are blocked or ignored by others and remain unfulfilled because of their own limits. You can choose to be more creative or resist if you want, but why would you want to? Necessity may be the mother of invention, but creator's intent is the father. Nature's principle of self-organization tells us that species evolve when their environment is appropriate for it, and they spontaneously extinguish when it is not conducive to life. The action-reaction aspect to this tells us how life is organized, and that gives us an amazing power. The principle says that if we put in place the conditions for being healthy, wealthy, and wise, well then, presto, we'll get lucky and inherit the fruit of that labor. It's like magic. But this kind of organization does require good governance. Nature's second management principle says every complex system is self-configured. This means that every system chooses its own constituent parts and adaptations. A good example is the toucan. A rather large bird, it looks kind of awkward when it flies in a jungle because of that huge beak. Unless you know that toucans don't really eat Fruit Loops. Rather, they steal eggs from the nests of other birds. Then the decision to evolve that beak doesn't make a lot of sense. Even if it makes them look awkward in flight, their beak is made of a hard plastic-like material, so when the toucan dips it into a nest to steal an egg, all the protests and plucking defenses put up by the IRA parents won't slow it down at all. The toucan has assured itself an easy source of protein far into the future with that beak. Many organizations started in that same kind of self-configuring way. They adapted as time went on, often becoming kind of unwieldy and awkward to manage. I remember Susie and I helping a furniture company which had its beginnings in that same piecemeal and chaotic sort of way. It was started in a field in the countryside in a metal Quonset hut but it grew and soon a manufacturing plant evolved. Extensions over the years transformed it into a chaotic mishmash of departments and manufacturing zones. When we met the owner, his company looked like a rough collection of knit-together pieces. It didn't even have an organizational flowchart. After training the management team on strategic thinking, we guided them to imagine the ideal plant. Soon they had fleshed out a list to architects who designed a new way of doing. The company banked its future on a brand new state-of-the-art facility to better serve themselves and their customers. In that same way, individuals adapt to the circumstances of their life by choosing how to respond. How do you adapt? Choices like whether or not to attend a university or a trade school depend on even earlier choices and the circumstances that shape them. Did you crack the books? Did you live in a stable environment? Many people, hurt or damaged, choose to self-medicate with drugs and alcohol, or they practice other destructive behaviors, like risky sex, or they seethe in anger and hatred. Some sad folks are passive-aggressive and trying to ignore life. Yeah, everyone is somehow adapting to life circumstances and events. However, the way you choose to adapt, whatever behavior you choose, nature is telling you, make your choice but inherit the consequences. Nature compels us to adapt and grow. A Bible verse sums it up kind of nicely. When I was a child, I thought as a child, I believed as a child, and I spoke as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. Either you continue to manage yourself by linking up with your past and your old habits, or you choose a new adaptation, one that can lead to an ideal future. As if to drive home that point, nature's third management principle says that every complex system is self-regulated. It is managed from an in-here. My favorite example is the Portuguese man-of-war, a sort of jellyfish. Did you know that that creature is not a single organism? 
It's an organized system made up of dozens of individual animals from two species, polypoids and zooids. They live together in perfect synergy. Those critters are physiologically integrated into one animal to the extent that they cannot survive independently. The bulbous head is a sail-shaped structure filled with gas. It drags tentacles, some dozens of meters long, that are covered with poisonous barbs that deliver a painful sting powerful enough to kill fish, and even occasionally a human being. Feeding on fish and plankton, the man-o-war is like a trawler dragging its venomous tentacles that trap and paralyze prey. It directs its catch up to the polyp that digests it, and then redistributes the nutrients to the whole system. Both species function at one. No one has compelled them to do this. They made their own decisions based on mutual need. They decided to form a team, a collective. Those stakeholders decide how the organization is managed, and they agree to all the who, what, where, when, and how related to day-to-day operations. Some companies thrive in challenging times while others fail based on the creative capital that is managing the operation. Differences between success and failure come from management decisions. Organizations are self-regulated. They manage themselves. Similarly, I make the decisions in regard to my own life. If I don't, I'm letting fate decide for me, or I'm giving up my power to random events and circumstances. Ready or not, my subjective in here is deciding how to manage my life decisions. Even if I had no choice about whether to hit that pole at 70 miles an hour and cause my car accident, I did have a choice about how to react to it afterwards, and I chose to not cry over spilled milk, to clean up my mess and to carry on. Rather than react to circumstances, nature expects us to invest in our creative capital and grow. That means learning to climb local peaks in order to solve simple problems, to scale global peaks so as to understand rugged landscapes, and to work well with others when things start to dance. The fourth principle of self-organization states that every complex system is self-steering. That is to say, each system manages itself with regards to an out there. A graphic example is the American crocodile. Susie and I have a training tour where we take participants to its last natural habitat, the Tarcoles River in Costa Rica. That river is among the most polluted waterways in all of Central America. A ferocious predator, the American crocodile has successfully survived for more than 50 million years, but now it's endangered because of conditions outside of its control. It has to steer itself through situations determined by the conditions of that river. The American crocodile does not have the ability to put on a suit to go downtown in San Jose and to wield the political pressure that assures it its future. It must wait there in a poisoned environment until it dies. The life lesson I learned is this. Even if you think that you control the conditions that determine your success and failures, do not ignore the larger world out there. Whether it's a corporate concern over competition or a worker trying to manage his or her own career, others are involved. There are good, bad, and stupid people out there, and they're very busy. Trying to ignore the world around you is a mistake. It gives rise to an egocentric perception of reality that can blind you. And while some people seem to believe we are free to act as we please, fate always finds a way to remind us of our limits. I remember watching a large Canadian retailer politely planning to streamline his operations so he could share the market with an upstart American competitor. This while the American strategy was to dominate the market and crush the competition. I'll let you guess who won that trade war. Consider how a simple thing out there can cause a major problem in here. A snowstorm forced the meeting to be cancelled and that postponed our signing a contract which stopped the bank's promise of a credit extension, which forced the payroll to be missed, causing key employees to quit and the company to fail. A la Murphy's Law, even if no one anticipated snow, things quickly became a perfect storm anyway. Nature's fifth management principle states, every complex system is self-maintaining. 
That is, systems tend to protect themselves in continuity. We'll call it self-preservation. Consider the jaguar as an easy example. That cat claims a territory of a hundred square miles as his alone, and he does not tolerate any other male cat hunting there. He'll fight challengers to the death, slaying them with a single bite to their skull and to their brain. He does allow a certain number of females to use his territory, though, and he expects them to mate in exchange for the privilege. Imagine an amorous weekend where they'll couple 40 or more times a day, but then, afterward, he continues to live and hunt alone. Jaguars take their survive and prosper law very seriously and protect their resources ferociously. We'll see self-preservation every time somebody gets caught with his hands in the cookie jar or whenever the doo-doo hits the fan. When shit happens, it seems everyone runs ragged trying to pass the buck. Many companies even hire crisis control specialists to manage the spin when something goes bad. Often, because people don't want negative stains to reflect on them, they try to hide the real story. This is why outdated ideas, old rules, and misguided processes are protected and become sacred cows. It also explains how bad laws remain on the books and why tyrants get into power. They promise to protect us from us. In the same idea, note that the very first priority of a committee is to protect its mandate. Jobs, funds, responsibilities, and power all come from that mandate, so it must be preserved at all costs. How many government programs established for a time-limited purpose still receive taxpayer funds many years after it's lived the cause? For a concrete example, take a look at how personal income tax became a thing. It was a temporary measure taken in 1917 to pay for World War I. Human systems are self-maintaining because people lie. When you lie, you don't acknowledge the problem, so there's nothing to fix. Politicians lie, media lies, humans lie often and about the most trivial of things. We think that lies protect us. Unfortunately, they only preserve that very system we'll later rail against. I've spent many years promoting universal access issues for disabled persons, and I continuously run into Catch-22. When I bring up a building's lack of wheelchair access to its owner, for example, I'll invariably be told, oh, we don't see disabled people here. Of course not. There is no access. In the sense that our quest is to self-protect, and by extension to protect our family, community, country, or whatever else it is, we limit our potential for growth. Self-protection is a character trait that must be managed carefully. It closely resembles self-importance, and that is our greatest enemy. By maintaining an ego position wrapped around how we see today, ego is limiting a better future. The sixth management principle says every complex system is self-reproducing. This means systems encourage, replicate, or duplicate other systems similar to its own. I think women have enough experience trying to break through the glass ceiling to understand how the old boys network is a subtle force in the business world. In nature, to prosper means to go forth and multiply. We see species go through extraordinary mating rituals to answer that command. I'll use the monarch butterfly as an example because it has such a complex reproduction process. It undergoes a four-step metamorphosis starting as an egg laid by a female and sperm provided by a male. It then goes through six stages of larva to become a pupa before emerging as a fully formed adult butterfly. We answer the sixth principle with our sex drive. It seems to have paid off as we've taken over the world, becoming its dominant species. The same drive compels organizations to grow to open branch offices, franchises, and foreign territories. Companies want to globalize and become super organisms. People want to prosper and grow families. We want to belong to a happy tribe and a prosperous society. We know that we can create more than children, especially in this information age. Our legacy can be co-creative instead of just procreative. What good ideas will you leave behind as your legacy? What recipe or what project will you be remembered for? 
creatures of habit, we tend to repeat what we know best. With this idea that we are self-maintaining, how often do you encourage, replicate, or duplicate your own fears and limits? How often do your habits limit your future? Nature's seventh management principle tends to equalize things. It levels the playing field by stating, every complex system is self-referent. That is, its character and behavior are only meaningful with respect to itself. I think that we tend to take ourselves a little too seriously at times. It's good to recognize that no one else does. Nature says complex systems only has itself as a point of reference. In conferences and seminars, I'll often show the participants a picture of a married couple fishing from a small boat on Lake Arenal in Costa Rica. I know that they're quietly chatting, but it doesn't really matter what they're talking about. What does matter is that they have their back to a living, breathing volcano sitting right there next to them on the lake. They can be discussing anything at all about their plans to rule the world or their next billion-dollar deal. But it doesn't matter a flying fig if that volcano suddenly coughs a lump of magma the size of a Toyota. The sudden eruption and their discussion ends, and so does any thought of themselves in the grand scheme of things. I've told people that the day after my car accident, when I was dying in the ICU, I had things to do. I had a filled agenda and appointments with people. Destiny didn't give a flying fig about my plans. Karma can be a bitch. Self-reference gives rise to our tendency to judge others in ways that put us in a better light. I have strong character. You are loud and pushy. I was assertive. She was bitchy. We are good. They are bad. We are right. They are wrong. We'll be blinded by our self-serving beliefs. I've heard company CEOs who predicted results that could not be. Leaders of country promise victories that will never happen, and religious leaders speak about a creator they do not know. This because, regardless of the facts, people tend to hold on to opinions that suit them. To make the point, in our training, Susie and I give leaders a quest. Lost in the jungle, they must make critical decisions to survive. We promise that we'll reveal any information they need to solve their quest if they ask for it. Then we'll circulate among the participants and ask them if they have any questions. We are not surprised that managers, leaders, company executives don't ask questions. They jump into a fix-it mode without facts, only beliefs and opinions to guide them, and they fail every time. The loudest opinion wins. Decisions are made and the group figuratively dies. We then teach them a tool that helps them move beyond their self-referencing limits. If you remember, in my last podcast, I said that we can question the unknown until it reveals itself. People are usually surprised to see how quickly they've arrived at a consensus and favorable outcome when they're using the right tool. The eighth principle of self-management in nature is self-awareness. This is the notion that a complex system is conscious and aware of its own character, behavior, and circumstances. I like to use the howler monkey to drive home this idea, but it applies to any complex system. The howler monkey reminds me that self-awareness belongs to more than just humans. Self-awareness emerges with complexity, but I think you have to spend time with another species to appreciate its capacity to think intelligently and to feel. I'll limit my comments, but I suggest you watch animals being tested for intelligence on YouTube. It'll surprise you to see that chimps recognize a reflection of themselves in the mirror, and they recognize others in pictures or on video. They are highly amused by cartoons and magicians. You will also see a tribe of chimpanzees plan and wage a war against a competitor who entered their territory. Then you'll be convinced that they are very intelligent beings. Scientists intent on measuring their intelligence have devised tests that show that some animals do even better than humans. Chimps have a better short-term memory than we do, for example, and wolves develop language skills that allow them to use group intuitiveness. If we measure particular talents, I suggest the octopus might be more self-aware than anyone you know. It can command the individual cells of its body to morph shape and change color. It completely alters its look by shape-shifting 
into an elaborate structure that looks like a coral. Self-awareness is a key ingredient when managing any organization. It allows self-correction. Corporations pay big money to consultants to guide them, and they use focus groups for the feedback that allows them to self-reflect. When you are aware of your strengths and weaknesses, you can plan strategically. You can capitalize on your strengths and shore up your weaknesses. This same logic applies to individuals everywhere. If you are aware of your strengths and weaknesses, you can strategically plan. A successful entrepreneur will sell his strengths and buy his weaknesses. You can partner up with people and resources. You can add to your structural capital, your client capital, and your creative capital. And this brings me to nature's ninth management principle. Species can self-empower. That is to say, we can change our character, our behavior, and our circumstances. A good example is the fly orchid I described in the first episode. I told you that circumstances grew this flower on the forest floor where very little wind makes it difficult to scatter pollen. In answer, the flower evolved the look of a female fly. Not only did it change to attract male flies, it secretes a scent that mimics a female fly's sexual pheromones, guaranteeing that flies stop by and pollinate. In fact, its message is so powerful, even in bees drop by. Nature wants us to empower ourselves and fix what ails us. As we see our limits, then we must surpass them. Nature expects us to adapt by modifying our character, changing our behavior, and altering our circumstances so as to transcend limits, challenges, and handicaps. Power is a result of the process. I've seen organizations redefine themselves. Take IBM as an easy example. It is now in its third incarnation. Founded in 1906, the company first made scales and then punch card tabulators. Later, it built mainframe computers and calculators. Today, it is best known for its software and its consulting and IT services. IBM claimed its power by adapting whenever needed. People can change too. I'm not the same person I was before my accident. Mind you, I'm not the same person I was before grade school either. I have added power to myself. Nature expects every individual to self-empower. There are no exceptions to the law. I'll close by saying this. Nature manages complex situations by installing a system that compels individuals to climb to a position subjectively above the situation. Nine management principles compel every system to self-organize. Self-configuration allows that system to choose its constituent parts and adaptations. Self-regulation determines how the system must manage its in-here. This involves managing your thoughts, feelings, and behaviors so as to reach goals. Self-steering is where a system manages itself with regards to an out there, a complex world. Self-maintenance triggers the fight-or-flight response, but when used to protect one's ego, that can be destructive. Self-reproduction is all about going forth to multiply, or to clone, or to amass a fortune. Self-reference asserts, I am the boss of me, at least until karma catches up with you. The saving grace is the principle of self-awareness. That's the feedback loop where we see ourselves in motion. I understand the value of my structural capital, my client capital, and my creative capital. So then the ninth principle is self-empowerment, which favors creative adaptation. I can change my circumstances by adding to my structural capital my client capital, and my creative capital. As an individual, then, nature says you have the duty to self-empower. So what is limiting you? You can change whatever that is. Whether your problem is a simple one that could be plotted as a volcano landscape, or if it's complex and must be viewed as a rugged landscape, or even a dancing landscape, nature has deemed that to solve it, you must rise above it. You must climb to the peak and their solution will emerge. Remember that heaven helps those who help themselves. If your behavior is self-sabotaging, get help. If the circumstances that surround your life are preventing you from reaching your highest potential, make a plan to change them. 
Head for the high ground. Climb your local and global peaks to survey your landscape. Nature wants you to thrive. Thanks for listening. Friends, I'll speak to you next time in a podcast called How Nature Favors Creative Leaders. Then I'll explain how we are gifted to play five strategic roles. If you enjoyed this presentation, please give it a positive review. Subscribe and tell your friends about it. If you didn't, write and tell me why not. Thanks again. Adios for now. The Jungle Times podcast was written and animated by Lawrence Poole. If you enjoyed his presentation, share it with your friends and colleagues, click the like button, and leave your opinions in the comment section. Visit thejungletimes.com to learn more about Lawrence and his adventures. Follow him on Facebook, LinkedIn, or Twitter. You can order his latest book, Invest in Your Creative Capital, from Amazon.com. Subscribe to this channel in order to receive all the latest news. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.